Well, good morning and good morning. What a privilege it is to be sharing once again with you from God's Word on this Lord's Day. Would you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 14? Psalm 14, today we'll uh, perform surgery as we look at the anatomy of a fool. That's Psalm 14. This is our, our 12th and it's our final message in the series, Summer in the Psalms. Just listen for a moment as you're turning there as I list some of the subjects that have been covered this summer. A number of you have um, commented on how much you've benefited from these sermons covering topics like the importance of godly character, uh, childlike trust, praising the Lord, a prayer of repentance, the blessings of unity, an appeal to the nations, uh, the encouragement to keep looking up, meditating on what God is like, another on the great king, and a message from the first psalm on the great contrast, the blessed and the wicked. And if you missed any of these, uh, you see it in your bulletin there. You can hit our website. You can also hit sermonaudio.com and get caught up. This morning, our eyes rest upon a very familiar psalm, Psalm 14. It's repeated a couple times in the Bible. In fact, Psalm 53 is almost a verbatim repetition of it. And then it's quoted again in the famous passage in uh, Romans 3, which we'll look at in a little while. So when God repeats a text, we should make note of it. And when he repeats it a third time, it should have our undivided attention. What we see here in this psalm, it's not good. It's not good. It's something akin to a shipwreck, like watching something that already took place in slow motion and you realize it never ever really had to happen. It could have been all avoided, much like uh, the Titanic, the sinking of the Titanic to the bottom of the North Atlantic. And this psalm definitely mirrors the Titanic. Uh, Think with me through on this. Now, if we go purely by numbers, the Titanic's sinking in 1912, it claimed 1,500 lives, 1,500 lives, and it was a tragedy. But almost no one ever mentions a word about the 1987 sinking of the ferry boat Donna Paz, which killed 4,375 people. Or the capsizing of the Lajula, which claimed 1,863 lives in 2002. And I, I suspect that in part, this is due to the story behind the story. And many of you are familiar with that. The Titanic had received four warnings of impending danger throughout the day from ships that were uh, in the midst of that ice. And most, if not all, of these uh, warnings did not reach the bridge or the captain. They were foolishly ignored. All four warnings. As the story goes, 11 p.m. that night, a wireless operator named Jack Phillips, he receives a direct warning call from the California, which is just a ship 10 miles away uh, in the midst of some very large ice. And his response to the California is, shut up, shut up, I'm busy. 40 minutes later, the most celebrated cruise ship in history hits a massive iceberg. And within hours, the unsinkable ship is sunk. The Titanic rested in her watery grave along with 1,500 souls. Now, this psalm, Psalm 14, is the Titanic of the Psalter. It's the Titanic of the Psalter. To the fool, these words that we're about to read, they seem unnecessary. His or, or her journey through life is going just fine. 
They may even think it's unsinkable. And although God warns about the navigational hazards, with wild abandon, the fool persists. Shut up. Shut up. I'm busy. Full speed ahead. But the reality is, the stark reality is that the fool will sink. Absent a miraculous work of God, a violent collision is about to take place that will rank as one of humanity's greatest spiritual disasters. And in this psalm, David recounts the horrors of a collision at sea. It's God's caution to all who sail the same waters of life. Well, let's look at that. Psalm 14. Let me read Psalm 14 here for you. Seven verses. It reads, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all the workers of wickedness not know, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores his captive people. Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. We need to understand that by using the word fool, it would be good to note this morning, that we are not, David's not referring to intellectual stupidity. This is not about some kind of lack of information. Rather, the term fool, it has a, uh, a moral meaning. In Hebrew, it's nabal, nabal. And it's a, a, a negative moral term referring to someone who's made an ethical choice for evil. James Montgomery Boyce, in his excellent commentary on uh, Psalms, says this. He wrote this. The reason that this person is a fool and not merely mistaken is that he knows that there is a God, and yet he chooses to believe and act as if there is none. That's the cause of the spiritual shipwreck here. The fool lives as if there is no God. That's a, a practical atheist. The fool is not for God. His or her rejection is deliberate. It's intentional. It's an outright refusal of God himself. And so we have a, a detailed layout, an anatomy of what makes a fool. A fool, the anatomy of a fool. Now, there's no surprises here. If you know your Bible, if you know that what is in your heart will affect your mind, it will then corrupt your soul, and it will remove any and all strength, and you already know where we're headed. You already know kind of the roadmap of Psalm 14. And it's, it's a very bleak picture. It's displaying what we know theologically as the depravity of man. The depravity of man, which, let's just say it now, is not that an individual does not believe in God. Rather, it's a, a moral, ethical choice that they have made, they, that they want to live without God. To reject what a person knows to be true. And it's a, as a product of the fall of Adam. In fact, we inherited their sin nature. All of us are born in a very real sense as Adam's and Eve's. And consequently, as 
Isaiah says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. So what we have here with the so-called atheist is a lack, not a lack of information, not merely a, a uh, different perspective on spiritual reality. No, it, it's not anything like that at all. What is found in this text outright in this text here is open defiance. The fool needs to be honest. There is a, a refusal to listen to reason, a rejection to the fear of the Lord, which could have led him or her to godly wisdom. And so if we look closely, we can see that the fool's first problem, if you're taking notes in your bulletin this morning, number one here is in the heart, in the heart. Just listen again to the voice of the fool in verse one. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. There is no God. The heart here, again, refers to the entire inner person, the moral will of that person. And the fool's problem is that his heart, it refuses to acknowledge God, even the knowledge of God. In fact, the words there is does not exist in the Hebrew text. There is has been added to your English translation to smooth out the sentence. In the original Hebrew, it literally reads, the fool says, no, God. No, God. His heart rejects the Lord God. No, God. It's an intentional turning away of what has been presented to the individual. When God is presented and the, and the evidence of him in creation, in his or her consciousness, is made known, the response is, no. No, God. And this is what the psalmist David is saying here. The fool has said in his heart, no, God. I, I will have nothing to do with God. It, again, this is a deliberate choice to reject that, which is obvious. Still in verse 1, look at the end of it. We see what they say that they believe, what is in their heart. They say that there is no God, and then their lifestyle is corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does Good And the point here is that those who reject God, unbelievers, they behave like unbelievers. And it, it shouldn't surprise us. It does at times. I think sometimes we get frustrated and we, we see things happening in the world and we go, why are they behaving like that? And we don't stop and remind ourselves what we already know from Scripture, that unbeha- unbelievers behave like unbelievers. It shouldn't shock us. As Christians, I don't know why this gets us so excited, so worked up. They have a different worldview. They make up a worldview that defines this God out of existence so that they can live as if God doesn't exist. And that is when believers, unbelievers, excuse me, behave like unbelievers. You know, the fear of the Lord, Scripture says in Proverbs 8.13, keeps one from evil from sin. It should direct the course of one's life, but instead every effort is made to love the sin. And David says here, it's foolish. It's morally corrupt. And then now he calls on God as his witness in verse 2. You see, it says, the Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And here's the verdict in in verse 3. They have all turned aside 
Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And this is where it gets interesting, yes? Perhaps you were thinking, you know, I'm so glad that he's talking about the fool this morning because so-and-so is here and they do not believe in, and they are a fool. But newsflash, God goes on to say, we're all fools. You've all been fools. There is no one who does good, not even one. Look at it again in verse 2. This is sobering. Are there any? He asks, are there any who understand? Are there any who seek after God? I ask, are there any whose heart does not require the surgeon's hand with a capital S, right? And the verdict from the witness is no. No, there is not. Not a single one. They have all turned aside. Together they have become, what a word, corrupt. They've all become corrupt. By the way, the word corrupt is from a term that speaks of sour milk, curdled and corrupt. I am paranoid about sour milk. Uh, If you know anything about me, especially in my home, I probably drive my wife crazy. I know I do. But in this, I probably do because if that milk even has been in there long enough, even has a hint of it, I need a smell test. And you would think that I would be the one doing the smell test? No. I ask her, honey, can you smell this? Is this okay? Worse yet, if it starts to drop, if the the level on the milk starts to go down, you know what I'm talking about? Like you got an inch left? I jump to the new container. I, I don't want to touch it. I don't want to touch it. If, if there's cooking going on in the house and the, the gallon of milk is on the counter, I'm the one that quickly will irritate everybody. I'll put it right back in the refrigerator because I want to keep it cold. I don't know what it is. I've got this problem with milk and, and it being <laughs> curdled and, and corrupt. Thankfully, I don't drink much of it. But all of our society is sour milk. It's corrupt a corruption that marks the entirety of the human race according to God. And at the end of verse 3, notice what it says here. There is no one who does good. So it repeats what was said in verse 1, but then adds a qualifier. Not even one. Without a work of God in the heart of man, all reject the Lord. Your heart and my heart first required a transplant, if you're a believer in Christ, to receive the Lord. Ezekiel uh, 36, 26, the Lord says, I will give you a new heart and, and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, as part of the promise of Israel's restoration, as people are told, the Lord your God will change your heart and the hearts of all your descendants so that you will love him with all your heart. Yes, there is a a a big problem with the fool's heart. And this is where it all begins, in the heart. That is, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, none would come to recognize God for who he is. No, not one. And suddenly you, you begin to see that this is such a broad statement about the corruption of humanity. All are practical atheists, practicing 
atheists as if the one true God does not exist. But he does. He does. He is the God who made himself known in the scriptures. The God who reigns. The God who is the judge. This is what these verses are saying. Would you turn over to Romans chapter 1? Romans 1, please. Scripture repeats this, and you need to see this, as it helps us to understand the world in which we live. It can get very frustrating in the world in which we live today. Why is everything so out of control? What, what happened to honor? What happened to the value of human life? Why is sin so embraced? Why is authority so rejected? How can we in any way go forward with all of this obvious corruption all about us? Well, this explains it. It is found in the human heart that rejects the Lord. It it comes from the core of the human heart that has cast aside God and therefore has no restraint on the evil that is within Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, watch this, suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You know, this is a New Testament prophecy that is coming true day after day right before our very eyes. There is a God. And the fool is suppressing this truth concerning him. The fool shuts it down with rhetoric, refusing to listen, rejecting every evidence of it. Look at verse 19. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. There is no excuse for this. There's none. It is morally culpable. It is something for which they're going to be held responsible and accountable. There'll be no excusing themselves at the judgment seat of God by saying, well, I didn't really believe in you. God's not going to accept that. He, he's going to say, you knew and you simply refused. It's a refusal to listen. The fool is unteachable. The fool is uncompromising. The fool is a fool. Look at verse 21, still in Romans 1. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their, there it is, foolish heart was darkened. Their foolish heart was darkened. You know, we're examining the anatomy of a fool. And it begins with the heart, a a foolish heart that is darkened, according to Paul here, a heart that rejects the Lord. And scripture says that the whole human race is like this. I mean, before we head back to Psalm 14, take a quick look at Romans 3, 9. Just because we're here. Remember, our Old Testament text is repeated here in the New Testament, Romans 3, 9. What then? Are we better than they? 
Not at all. That's not what we're saying. No. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Here's what I wanted you to see from this passage is that Scripture expands us out and it applies to all of humanity. Verse 10, as it is written, there is none, none righteous, not even one, quoting from Psalm 14. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And furthermore, the depravity of humanity is all around. I mean, it is all-embracing, all-encompassing, all-inclusive. It's everywhere. A darkened heart will always lead to a darkened mind. If you turn back to Psalm 14. Psalm 14. I want you to see how the heart infects the mind here. And notice how beginning in verse 4, in verse 4, we shift from the vertical to the horizontal. We shift from the vertical to the horizontal. Here's what I mean by this. What I mean by this is, and, and if you've had any form of biblical counseling, you've heard this in some way, shape, or form. And you certainly have heard it from this pulpit and in our teaching. In any relational conflict, what is important first and foremost is the vertical, your relationship with God. You have to get that right. You have to work on your vertical. And when you do that, say your spouse, as you both grow closer to the Lord, you grow closer to each other. So the vertical is first and then the horizontal that's there. And here we're shifting from the vertical to the horizontal. Verse four, do all the workers of wickedness not know who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? This leads us to the second affected area of a fool, affected and infected, really, and that is the mind, the mind. Back to Nabal and the meaning of being a fool. These fools often have a high intellect. In fact, they often represent some of the, the brightest and most creative minds in the world, PhDs even. In the period of time that that I worked in broadcasting, I worked with some really smart PhD people, wonderful people. However, Proverbs 1, 7 still holds true. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Biblically here, they're still fools. And because of a, a heart problem, they end up with a mind problem with a mind problem. Not only is the heart darkened and in need of a transplant, but the mind is set on things of the flesh, Romans 8, 5. The mind has been blinded by the God of this age so that they cannot see the light, the truth, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Scripture says that the fool's mind is closed, 2 Corinthians three fourteen, and even poisoned, Acts 14, 2. And when that has taken place, watch what they do. It says here they devour God's people as they would eat bread. What's that? Okay, so you're sitting at the restaurant. You're hungry as all get out. And the server brings the hot bread. And what do you do? Do you hold back? No. We devour it. 
We devour it to the point that the server comes back and you're almost like, did you ever bring us bread? Could you bring some more bread, please? Keep it coming. Keep it coming. We're really hungry. And here it says, they eat up my people as they eat bread. The mind of a fool rejects the people of God. The people of God. Now, perhaps it's as simple as mocking and scorning, even making fun of what a believer uh, holds dear. You can see it in the news. You can see it in sitcoms, in the movies, everywhere around you, in the workplace and in family relationships, politics. This is not a feel-good message today. Remember, it's a titanic kind of warning saying, danger ahead. What is your view of God and his people? The fool's heart feeds the mind, and that mind rejects the people of God to the point that some will eat them up as easily and as thoughtlessly as they would eat a slice of bread. They just stick it in their mouths and chew it. It doesn't take any effort. It doesn't take any thought. It's just a natural overflow of a heart that has previously ordained itself to hate God, to reject God and then his people. And it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? I mean, to oppose God's people is to oppose God himself. That is the heart and mind of a fool. David here is expressing a sense of amazement that these sinners, they are so wrapped up in their senseless hatred of God and his people that they never stop to think about what the ultimate outcome of these attitudes are going to be. Verse 4 again, it's as if David is wondering, don't they know? Don't they understand that when they do this, when they eat up God's people, when they don't call upon the Lord themselves, don't they understand that there's consequences to that? Verse 5, that in that position, there they are in great dread. I don't ever want my name associated with that word, dread, let alone great dread. They are in great danger with that attitude. Why? Look at the end of verse 5. This is good. For God is with the righteous generation. Oh, yeah. God is with his people in their distress. And verse 6 continues, You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted? This is addressed directly to the fool. You would mock and scorn those who trust in the living God in the, the midst of their hardship? You, you mock them and scorn them from some kind of position of false intellectual superiority as if you're talking to a Nabal? But, get this, understand this, you're the fool. Because in verse 6, the Lord is that individual's refuge. The Lord is the Christian's hiding place. You may be able to impact him or her temporarily, but ultimately, mm -mm, God's got him. God's got him. He is the, the promise keeper, and their souls are sealed for the day of redemption. Notice the all caps uh, there as well. By the way, it should be all caps in verse 4. 
if you're reading in old NASB and New American Standard Bible, they slipped up as, as it's the same word. It's, it's Yahweh. It's translated in the capital letters for Lord. And this God loves his people. He defends them to the very last drop of his blood, as it were, defends them even on Calvary, will justify them and glorify them in the end. This is their refuge. I love the end of verse 6. The inspired text is saying, The fool is going against someone, capital S, that you cannot possibly defeat. And this is going to turn out bad for the fool in the end. Really bad. You want to see? We know the outcome. God's word details it for us in Revelation. Revelation 20. Let's turn there. Revelation 20. We've looked at the heart of a fool that rejects the Lord God. The mind of a fool that rejects the people of God. And here we see the soul of a fool that receives the wrath of God. The wrath of God. Looking at Revelation 20 here, verses 11 to 15. And this passage I'm about to read to you, this passage describes the final sentencing of the lost, of the fool. And it is the most serious, sobering, and tragic passage in the entire Bible, I would argue. The great white throne judgment. Great white throne judgment, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne. It is great because we're dealing with Jesus. It is white because of the purity of our Lord. And it is a throne because he is king with a capital K here. And him who sat upon it, that's Jesus, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. And no place was found for them. And I, I saw the dead, the great and the small. Doesn't matter your status. Doesn't matter who you are. Standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to the deeds. You see here, they're going to be judged according to their deeds because they're not represented by one deed, by Christ on the cross. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. The death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown, literally hell, this is how almighty God is, is thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You see, the fool whose heart, mind, and soul remain unchanged in his or her lifetime is destined for the lake of fire for all eternity. The fool refuses to believe, refuses. And I think the greatest point of that unbelief in our culture and in our churches today is an unbelief in the wrath of God. In the wrath of God. Do you believe that there remains 
a wrath to come. I mean, both David in Psalm 14 and here John in Revelation 20, they've got some intense words. I mean, you can't really dance around these words. You either believe it or you don't. It's an intense confrontation for the ungodly. In this anatomy of a fool, there's a, a progression going from bad to worse, from a rejecting to actually receiving something, and it's not good. It's not good at all. I recently read a, a book, a little book by uh, R.C. Sproul, entitled Saved by What? I absolutely loved it. Little book, R.C. Sproul, Saved by What? And in it, he wrote this. In the Old Testament, the fundamental difference between the true prophet and the false prophet was that the true prophet proclaimed the day of the Lord as a day of consuming wrath. The people didn't want to hear that, so the false prophet received applause by promising the people that the day of the Lord was a day of brightness and, and light and joy. There was nothing to worry about. God loves you. God has a wonderful plan for your life. But the reality is that God does not have a wonderful plan for the fool. To such people, God's plan won't look good at all on the day of judgment. God will speak then in his fury. You know, to say this another way, at times, perhaps, the fool looks strong in our earthly eyes. You know what I mean? There may be some power, perceived power, some prestige, productivity, but that strength is it's temporary at best. The one who is cursing God is about to be cursed. The supposed strength that we see, it's, it's supplied and sustained not by the Almighty. It's temporary. The strength of a fool will not remain. And so it reveals the curse of God for your notes. It reveals the curse of God. You know the, um, the blessings, the uh, rather Aaron's benediction in number six. You familiar with that? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face to you and give you peace. Such a, a great reminder for the believer that there's strength to be found in the Lord. But for the fool, there's no strength. There's no blessing, only the curse of God. What is revealed is the curse of God. The curse of God is the exact opposite of this kind of blessing from God. Imagine, if you give me a little license here, if we were to turn this benediction on its head for the fool, it would go a little something like this. May the Lord curse you and destroy you. May the Lord turn his back on you and be judgmental towards you. May the Lord leave you in darkness and give you unrest. But that's not what we have received, right? I was a fool who gave no thought to God until I was 24 years old. And he gave me a new heart, a renewed mind, secured my soul. And now his blessings are mine. In God's presence, yes, there is, there is strength and, and, and blessing. The only curse we have is named Jesus, for Paul said that Christ became a curse for us, Galatians 
Oh, I'm so grateful for that kind of curse. The object of our, our rescue, our redemption in Christ is because he and he alone removed the curse from us. Which brings me to our final point this morning, the final verse in, in this psalm, Psalm 14. Verse 7 reads, Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. But there really is no verb in the Hebrew text, so it should read, Oh, the salvation of Israel out of Zion. And that's the promised Messiah. The psalmist is, is here. He's saying, he's, he's praying. He's praying for restoration by the grace of God. The grace of God. He's appealing to heaven for a restoration. One that's going to result in salvation and then certainly celebration. Oh, that the deliverance would, would come from Jerusalem for the people of God is what that means. That in the midst of, of this affliction at the hands of ungodly people, David says, I am longing for that day when the deliverer steps up, when the deliverer comes forth and reverses course, turns over the present situation, installs righteousness, casts down the wicked. Oh, I'm longing for that day. I am praying that it would come. And verse 7 continues, when the Lord restores his captive people, Jacob will rejoice and Israel will be glad. Now, we as Christians in the New Testament era, we look forward to that day when Christ will assert himself, when he will return as king with a capital K, when he will reign with righteousness, when his kingdom will be established on earth, and then for all eternity, when the name of Christ is no longer a curse word, but is praised. When in the words of Isaiah, the sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you. For the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Oh, for that day to come. Like David, may we pray for the, the conflict between the God, between God and the fool to end. Because we know how it ends. There's an expiration date on the heart, mind, soul, and strength of a fool. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the, the floods came, the, the winds blew and slammed against the house and it fell and great was its fall. This psalm calls for a, a right understanding of God and man. He is holy we are not. Our true human state apart from divine grace is exactly what we've covered this morning. It's the anatomy of a fool. If, if you've received his grace, then you know, you know, this was you too. We have all been fools until we have received a new heart. Do you remember your, your post-op when you came out of that heart surgery, that, that transplant that took place? 
what it was like to know for the first time that your sins had been forgiven. The joy that is there in that. That your mind could be renewed by his word. And that your, your soul is sealed. That no one could take away the security of your salvation. But for the fool. The fool may deny all of this. The Christian can be confident. For the Christian, God is real. And he is our strength. And we are a blessed people. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together in your word. We thank you for this this building here. We thank you for your indwelling spirit, for these people, for your church. We thank you for Christ who who rose again, who intercedes for us at, at the right hand, at your right hand. And the fool, the fool may say in his heart that there is no God, but we, oh, we know better. We look at the heavens, we look at the skies, at the earth, creation, your natural revelation, and we can easily see that you exist. There is hope for the fool. There is hope for the fool. He or she can avoid the curse of God by asking for mercy. And that is our prayer this morning. Father, there are names of, of family, of friends, co-workers, loved ones that we long to see come to faith in Christ. And we pray for that name now. We pray that you would do a work in their heart and in their mind and soul, that they would turn to you confessing their sin placing their faith, their trust in you for the forgiveness of those sins and love you with all their strength. We are humbled. Humbled by your grace and mercy in our own lives. And we know that we've all been that fool found in Psalm 14. May we be full of praise this morning, being reminded of that and trusting you in this moment for the next. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.